come from Parade. I don't know if you ever got Parade magazine in the Sunday paper. That's where most of these come from. So my wife found them and sent them to me. You can leave your comments after church. <laughs> or not. Take your pick. I've been uh, going round and around with myself about what I want to talk on. And I had something all picked out, and then that got changed. And then I started to write something else out, and that got changed. And So now basically what I have are four points, each of which could be its own sermon. Uh, but I'll limit you. I'll be good. I'll be nice. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Now what? Or your telephones, yeah. Whatever Bible program you have, that works. Going to read the first three verses. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray your blessing on it, and I ask you to uh, anoint the words that are spoken and, and let them bring life into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a society with many distractions. Have you ever noticed do any of you think we have more distractions now than uh, when we were younger, when we were kids? Right. What were your distractions as a kid? Girls? You did. And I repeated it out loud, <laughs> loud enough for them to hear. What else? Toys, baseball. We used to do things to get into mischief, you know. We'd go fishing, but when we go fishing, we would just throw our bobber out there and let it sit in the thing and just watch it. We didn't really have a whole lot of cares when I was a kid growing up. But we have a, a lot more distractions now, so let me give you a couple of examples. Men, when you're watching a football game, and your wife asks you a question, do you hear it? <laughs> That's a good point. Do you hear it when you're not watching a football game? Right? We, we get distracted by the TV, or, or our mind gets focused on the TV, and we blot out everything else that's going on. By the way, women can do the same thing in different circumstances, so I'm not picking on men. You get a text while you're driving. How many of you stop and look at it? How many of you know we're not supposed to stop and look at it while we're driving? 
just so you know, when you open your phone and look at your text while you're driving 60 miles an hour down the highway, and by the way, who drives 60 miles an hour down the highway? No one. You're going 88 feet per second. So if you have that thing at your face for five seconds, you've traveled over the length of a football field. What can happen while you're focusing for five seconds driving at 88 feet per second? There's a lot of things that can happen. We get distracted, but then we focus on the distraction, and that causes us to miss out on things that may be more important, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Relationships can cause distractions. Work, your leisure, how about current events or general living? They can all distract us from the one person who Jesus who we should be focusing on. So I want to talk about fixing our eyes on Jesus a little bit, and then we'll get into a couple other examples of that. The Greek word here, I did not write it down, so I don't have to mispronounce it. I'm just going to say the Greek word for fixing your eyes means to look away from all else at. I know it doesn't sound grammatically correct. But basically, it's to turn your face away from whatever you were looking at and turn it towards what you want to look at. And that focus needs to be on Jesus. How often do we hear about people who try to add something or make something fit? Let me give you an example, because a lot of times when we say Jesus, people have very different impressions of, of what that what he looks like what he what he is uh, I was doing some research and every single major religion identifies Jesus as somebody special Buddhists do Hindus do Muslims do every single major religion has identified Jesus so when I talk Jesus to a Hindu person in their mind, I'm talking about a saint who is no different than Hare Krishna. That's, that's Jesus to that person. When I talk to uh, Islam, I'm talking to a person who believes Jesus was born of a virgin and that he ascended and resurrected and ascended into heaven, but he's coming back as a Muslim in order to correct Christianity. That's the Jesus that when you say Jesus to a Muslim, and how many of you know when we talk about God, God is such a nebulous term anymore that we can mean anything, and, and we often do. So it's important that when we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, we understand who Jesus is. Now, I want to give you just a, a brief picture. It's, it's the parable of the talents that uh, Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25. I didn't put this scripture up, so it's not going to show up on the screen. But I just want you to think about one thing. When in the parable of the talents, Jesus gave or entrusted, the scripture says, his talents to his slaves as they had ability. To one he gave five, to one he gave two, to one he gave one. Two of them went out immediately, the scripture says, and doubled the talents. It's important that, that you realize that, that Jesus had, or this master had a slip. I can talk. 
The master had a relationship with the slaves that enabled him to entrust them with this sum of money. And, and most biblical interpreters think that a talent was equal to about 16 years worth of wages. So if you've got five talents, you've got 80 years worth of wages sitting in your hand. And the one went and doubled it. And the one who had two went and doubled it. They had relationship with their master. They received the master's trust and they valued him enough to work for him and to gain this money for him. It's, it's to me important to realize that they did not earn anything from making this extra talents. It was the masters to begin with. Everything they earned was the masters. But they had that relationship with the master that enabled them to go and work for him. They had that, they had that respect. They had that love. They had that admiration for him. And then there's the one who went and hid his. Right? So the person gave his master back the talent. But he said something to me that is very telling. And in the New American Standard, it says, I knew you to be a hard man. That's how he interpreted his master. And how many times and how many people and how many religions interpret God and Jesus as a taskmaster with lightning bolts ready to throw down on any sin we commit? That's God in their minds. And if that's the perception we have of God, then that's the type of reaction we're going to give when he gives us something to do. We're going to be afraid to do anything because I don't want to do anything wrong. So the master gave the servants the ability to take a risk, but one said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Right? So you see that going on. So the two fixed their eyes on their master and were able to take that risk and get that reward and give it back to his master. So there are a couple other scriptures that talk about fixing our eyes. And the first one is in Philippians 4, 8. And I'm going to read out of the New Living because it actually uses the word. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So we think. What we think about determines how we act. And we have to act based on what we know Jesus to be and not what we think he is. The one servant thought he was a taskmaster or hard, but he isn't. We just have to understand that, and then we have to act accordingly. So the second scripture I wanted to share is Psalm 141.8. This is whoever wrote the psalm saying, But my eyes are fixed on you, sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. So we have the picture of fixing our eyes on Jesus. And, you know, it's, this is one of those scriptures that, that fall into me, in my mind, the same one as pray without ceasing. You know, I mean, from a logical, practical standpoint, I can't be down on my knees 24-7 praying. But I can have an attitude of prayer. I can have an attitude of, of bringing Jesus into everything I'm doing and, and make my emotions a prayer. I know that, um, that I can get fixed on 
numbers. Uh, I don't know if Tammy tells you, but working with accountants, I, I'm surprised we're actually a pretty jumpy lot because we'll get so busy looking at numbers that we kind of blank out everything around. So if we go to our neighbor's cubicle and do, because <coughs> they're so busy thinking about what they're doing and they're so intent on it that they can't get their mind on anything else and any distraction throws them for a loop. That's kind of the way we are. We, we just fix our mind. So we have this ability to fix our mind and I really don't know where I was going with that, but I was going somewhere with it. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. You, but we have to we have to fix our mind on Jesus, you know, and and make him the center of everything we do, and when we do that, now now we're bringing him into our work with numbers or our work with the fire department or our work at Walmart or wherever we're working, we're bringing him into that situation, and if our focus is on Jesus, then what comes out will be what Jesus wants us to do in a certain situation. And we have to get to that point where Jesus, I'm here, what do you want me to do? What, what am I here doing for you, Lord? And make myself available for him. And I wanna share just a little bit about Hezekiah. Hezekiah prayed a prayer to God. This is 2 Kings chapter 19, and it is not I don't think I printed that one up either, so I'm just going to have to read it to you, and you will have to trust me. Do you trust me? Huh? Fine. To set the stage just a little bit, Hezekiah was king of Judah. This is after the Assyrians had captured the northern kingdom and taken the Israelites captive way far away past Babylon. And their king, Sennacherib, decided that he was going to come after Judah. So he went into Judah, captured some of their towns, came on Jerusalem, and at that point in time, uh, Hezekiah sent to Isaiah the prophet and said, send us a word. And basically Isaiah said, he'll go away, but he'll come back. So that's what happened. He went away. And when he went away, he sent messengers back to Judah, and they sent a letter from Sennacherib that said, do you think that we are going to lose to you? Can you name any of the other gods who have saved their people? And, and we're going to do the same to you because we're, we're that strong. Now, you have to understand that Assyria was actually called of God to bring judgment on Israel. They just went a little too far, and they went into Judah. So basically, Hezekiah gets this letter, and I love what he did with the letter. Get in the right chapter here. Okay, in verse 14, he took the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of God. And he took the letter, and he laid it on the altar, and he prayed. The first thing he did when he got the letter was he went to the house of God, and he prayed. The first thing he did 
was he went and he prayed. Right? What's the first thing we do? What's the first thing we do when we watch the current events? We prepare, we get ready. What's the first thing we should do? We should pray. We should go to God. And listen to what he prays. He says in verse uh, 15, he says, O Lord God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven, you have made the earth. Listen to what he says. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. And then he goes on to explain to God what Sennacherib is saying. He's saying he's going to come and just wipe us off the face of the earth and take us captive. And God, you know what? He can do it. He actually told God that Sennacherib was right. He had defeated all of the people that he had gone after. He had defeated all the gods that he had gone after. But he recognized that they were gods of stone and wood and metal and not the true and living God. So, so Hezekiah fixed his eyes on the Father and said, Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has devastated the nations. They have cast their gods in the fire. Now, O Lord, I pray, in verse 19, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So he took that petition. And we can, we can fill in whatever for our petition. Incline your ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see. I have this petition. I have this diagnosis. I have this situation. I need a job, God. I'm coming to you because you alone are God. You alone can take this and do something with it that I can't. Hezekiah admitted he could not do anything about the Assyrians, but he knew someone who could, and he petitioned that God and said, please, and many of the versions actually say, please, God, do something. He was begging God to do something. And God came through and sent Isaiah and said, don't worry. He's not going to shoot an arrow. He won't build a seed ramp. Nothing's going to happen to you. And Hezekiah believed that. He believed that. You know? You know what it means to believe? How many of you know who Charles Blondin is? I may have mentioned him in one of my sermons two years ago. You must not have been listening. <laughs> what I may have said. He was a tightrope artist. And he was famous in the 1800s for going across Niagara Falls. Right? Many times he'd just go run back and forth and back and forth on this tightrope. One occasion, he took a stove out there and cooked an omelet in the middle while he's balancing on this tightrope. Once he took a wheelbarrow across, 
drove the wheelbarrow back, said, how many believe I can do this with someone in it? And everyone goes, I believe you can do it. I believe you can do it. And he goes, you, you sir, come get in. Think he did it? Because he believed, but he didn't really believe, or he didn't trust, or he didn't have faith that he would get him across to the other side. And many times we believe God's going to do something. But when God tells us to get in the wheelbarrow, oh, no, not me. Mm -mm. Finally, he was able to talk his agent not to get in the wheelbarrow, but to ride piggyback. So he carried his agent across on his piggyback. And you know what? How many of you know how he died? It was not falling off a tightrope. I will tell you that. He retired, died at home. He was able to look at that tightrope and say, I can do that. I can walk across that. It's not an issue. You know, and he was able to woo crowds and, and just people were blown away with what he could do while he was on that tightrope. But nobody would go on there with him. And God is calling us today, I think, to walk out on the tightrope in the wheelbarrow and let him push us. What does that look like? What does that look like? It's going to be different for each of us, you know? But I think about what would happen if Jesus came today? What would he think of with society the way it is? What would he think of of the church in general? How many of you know that there's a, I want to say a division going on in the United Methodist Church. There have been about 6,000 churches that have withdrawn from the United Methodist Conference. How many of you know why they're withdrawing? Most people think it's because they're allowing homosexuals to be ordained as priests. But that's not the true reason. That's just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a man named... Uh, I've got his name here. Uh, John Lomperis wrote a, an article based on a speech he gave in 2021. And he talked a little bit about the history of the United Methodist Church. It was founded in 1784 at what they call the Christmas Conference. And it was established as American Methodism. And one of their key goals was to get rid of slavery. That was one of their key goals. But over the course of the years, they happened to lose that discipline, and they lost their doctrine. Because by 1844, there were people in the United Methodist Church who were serving as priests who actually owned slaves, even though their doctrine said, we can't own slaves. So they started losing. And what happened was they started allowing themselves to be changed by culture. And this is the statement that John wrote. He says, this strong, principled Christian stand conflicted with the culture. If we insisted too much on the moral stand about slavery, there were fears we would offend people. Then we would drive people away. 
that we would especially offend some upper class people and lose a lot of money for our ministries. Any of this sound familiar? We have become a church that is afraid to offend. We've become a church that will not go out on a limb and say, this is wrong. It's wrong. I mean, I'm sorry the Bible says it if you don't like it, but it's still in the Bible and we have to proclaim it. We have to stand up for the truth. And if we're offending somebody by speaking the truth of what God wants us to do, then I'm sorry you're offended. But it's still the truth. And we have to understand that if I fail to tell the truth, I'm accountable to God. I mean, Ezekiel said, if you don't tell somebody about the way of life and they go to hell, his blood's on you. I don't want that to happen. But we become so afraid of offending people that we don't speak the truth. And I read a, a book, and there was a statement in a book about a pastor who was proud of the fact that he had not been canceled off of Facebook. You know, I'm, I mean, everybody gets canceled off Facebook if they start preaching the truth. You know, I mean, you're, you're almost, if you're still on Facebook, what's wrong with you? I hope I don't get canceled. <laughs> Gary, forgive me. Sorry. But we have to understand that there's truth to be told. And, and unless we start elevating that truth, unless we start fixing our eyes on Jesus and proclaiming what Jesus wants us to proclaim, We're not going to do anything for him. I think about Jesus being here. What would, what would happen today if Jesus came in here and threw over a money-changing table? What would they call it? Toxic masculinity. <laughs> you just can't express yourself that way, Jesus. It's against people's, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Don't make my house a house of merchandise. Don't do it. I just thought that was kind of interesting. What would happen if he came in and called a pastor's meeting a bunch of whitewashed tombs? He'd get kicked out of the ministerial association for sure. Yeah. Think about the statement because if we're so, we think about leading people to the Lord, but leading people to the Lord carries with it the risk of turning them away because we can't force them to make a decision. We can only present the truth. And, and just to point that out, I think about John chapter 6, where he fed the 5,000. The entire chapter is based on the result of that miracle and how people started seeking him not for the miracle, but because they ate dinner free. And Jesus brought the conversation around to say, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood in order to have any part of me. How would that go over today? 
what happened when he said that? Many of his disciples turned away and walked with him no more. Now, if he was concerned only about getting people to heaven, would he have said that in the first place? And yet we stop and think about, I don't want to offend this person, but how can I tell you that Jesus died to save you from your sins if you're not cognizant of the fact that you're a sinner? And how can I make you aware that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God if I can't say it? He wants us to focus on him so that the words that come out of our mouth are truth. And truthful words often will drive people away. That's why he says to speak it in love. We have to have the love of Jesus within us in order to know what to say and when to say it. And believe me, there are times where we don't speak the truth because the situation doesn't demand it. But we have to be aware and we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and know that we're so close to him that he can say this way, that way, and we'll go that way. Even if it's just a degree, we'll walk that way and we will be able to work the work that he wants us to do. Are we strong enough to take a stand for what is right? I look at the, the school board meetings and many people are standing up against the curriculum that's being taught and the, the policies that are being pushed without the parents' knowledge and consent. And I think about all these people who are standing up and I'm wondering how many of them are Christians? Or are they just parents who say this is wrong? We can't let the world take our message away. We have to make sure that we're championing that message. Because a day is coming when it's getting hard. It's going to get hard. I mean, we're already at a situation where, where we are being called activists, and in some cases terrorists, because of our stance for the Lord. And we have to understand that when that happens, there's going to be opposition. I was just reading an article about Sean Foyt, who was getting called all sorts of names, and he's had all sorts of things happen to him while he's trying to proclaim the love of Jesus. And in a joyful assembly, people are calling him dangerous. Dangerous. Are you dangerous for Jesus? I want to be dangerous for Jesus. You know, I want to be Satan's worst nightmare other than Jesus. Of course, I can't compete with Jesus. But I can be a second favorite worst nightmare. You know, wherever you guys fit in is up to you. But there's a lot to be said. I got a lot of time. <laughs> I could say a lot more. There's a lot to be said about how to reach a world that is spiraling out of control morally. And we see it and we watch it. And God is calling us to stand up inside of that and proclaim his truth. And the world is trying to push us back into our four walls and not say anything that's offensive or goes against their culture. And yet that culture is what we have to stand up and fight against. And I think that um, if we keep it inside the four walls of the church, we violate um, at our own peril. 
according to society. You can't say that because you're outside of church and that belongs in church. We can't do that. Yet there's, if there's ever a time to speak up, it's now. How can we not? We, we actually sang that in the song. How can we not speak up and say something? Because Jesus is coming back and we have to be ready for him to come back and he could come back at any time. And if my speaking up is my talent that I give to him, I want to double that talent. I, I really do. Whether it's five or two, I don't care. Even if it's one, I want to double it. I want him to be glorified and lifted up. And that will only happen when we fix our eyes at Jesus at the expense of everything else. And I mean everything else. And it's hard to put ourselves in that position and say, it's okay. But we have to. We have to be willing to do that. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, for the um, injunction to fix our eyes upon you. We thank you that as we do that, Lord, you reveal yourself to us in, in intimate ways. And you desire a relationship with us that is very close and very personal and very intimate. And as we fix our eyes on you, Lord, we surrender to you. We ask you to uh, move on us the way you want us to move. And we surrender to you, Lord, to do what you want us to do. Father, let us not be distracted by the things of the world, by the things that people say, by the things that people do, by the events that are going on, but let us look at those only in light of what you would have us to do in that situation. And Father, I ask you to um, just bless each one of us as we take the time to uh, listen to you and we take the time to move uh, towards you and we take the time to invite you to take over our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we um, head out, I just wanted to see if anybody would like prayer. Uh, we'll be up here to pray if you want to ask, you know, just Jesus to take full control of your life. You know, we're here to help you do that and uh, just pray with you and ask you to uh, follow him with all your heart in Jesus' name. So uh, be blessed. Otherwise, we'll be up here for a couple minutes and uh, just go in the name of Jesus. See you tonight at 6.30.